This is a break from the normal BritFlix.com podcast service, what I'm grandly calling the Future of Film series, where I talk to a number of professionals across the film industry about the impact of COVID and perhaps look into our crystal balls and see what that might mean for the future of film, the future of cinema, and in particular, what it means for indie filmmakers. Without further ado, on with the show. Recently, as in during the pandemic, I've interviewed 20 people who are taking part in Inside Pictures programme, and we talked a lot about what does the pandemic mean for the film industry and what does a post-COVID world mean for the film industry. And understandably, everyone had a lot of guesses and opinions, but nobody had the answer because there was 20 different answers. There was 20 different impacts. And this is people who work in production, who work in distribution, who work in exhibition, who work in sales, people who work in stop motion animation. You know, there was no real full understanding of what this might all mean. So with that in mind, I reached out to people to see if I could get some opinions on maybe how they see what's what's happened, what's happening, and what might happen in the future. Welcome to another BritFleets.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Cinema Will Be Back guru, editor of Celluloid Junkie, and all-round cinema expert, Patrick Von Sikowski. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely my pleasure, my pleasure. Now, before we go into a wider discussion about why we should feel there's a future for film. Um, let's first uh, let people know what Celluloid Junkie is first and, and what, they can, what they can find if they visit it. So Celluloid Junkie is an online publication which looks at the cinema business. So we don't do film reviews or gossip. We strictly look at the, the bricks and mortar and popcorn end of the business. So we look at business, technology, innovation, um, and it's mainly more of a kind of focus for people in the industry. But of course, we're open to anybody. You don't need a subscription. There's no paywall. Anybody's welcome. And hopefully they'll find something interesting. We do cover things of general interest. So we try to keep it understandable. So anybody's welcome, celluloidjunkie.com. It's been going for 10 years together with my colleague Sperling Reich based in Los Angeles. Quite recently, the article on six things cinema owners need to do when movies return is a fantastic to-do list, as far as I can tell. Um, as an example of the sort of thing that you do. Yes, there's a great article by my colleague Jim Amos. So I'll just give it a quick plug because he, um, he, he he's an industry executive, a lot of experience from Los Angeles, and he had some great suggestions of maybe obvious things, but, you know, suggestions like why not bring out bring back ushers? You know, we're going to have more staff looking after health and safety for cinema, so why not bring back, you know, that kind of personal touch to cinemas rather than just have a soulless multiplex where you check your ticket with a machine? I like cinemas for more reasons than just watching a film. I mean, I know I'm, I'm, I've got a vested interest as, so, as someone who runs a film podcast and is a, is a filmmaker, but the reason I love film is because going watching a, 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 a something in a darkened room with strangers and a shared experience is very different from sitting in my living room able to pause it and go to the toilet and make a drink and disrupt the film, answer the door when the when the Hermes guy wants to deliver something, et cetera, et cetera, which, which is the absolute <laughs> antithesis. That, oh, we've all been there. But it's the antithesis to the, to the seven, eight years that someone will have taken to make a movie in terms of how they'd want you to experience it. And a cinema is obviously a bit of a tried and tested uh, method, isn't it, in terms of delivering film? 
So in that sense, I want to I want to talk to you about about what bright future we've got. So as a, as a starting point, and we we had a pre discussion about this, so we've got a little little prompt list. Um, so let's start with the first prompt, which is cinema is dying. Stroke, it's not dead. Get this out of the way. What are we saying here, Patrick? Well, I was reminded of something interesting, which is during the lockdown in December, we actually had the 125th celebration birthday of cinema. It's 125 years ago since the Lumiere brothers had the first paid for screening, you know, in a cafe in Paris. So that's considered, you know, the birth of cinema as opposed to the birth of film and recording. Mm. And, you know, despite the Lumieres inventing it, Louis Lumiere went on record not long after, you know, this and says that he believes that cinema or, you know, motion pictures is an invention without commercial future. So the one of the fathers of cinema himself didn't think that it had a future and it was dying. And, and, you know, this, this keeps coming back, the death of cinema. It's, it's, it's like, um, you know, the, the horror monster that just, you know, refuses to lie down. We've had it written off when, you know, television came along, VHS, you know, piracy was going to kill it. So far, after 125 years, it's looking pretty robust. And um, I think it's one pandemic, one year of not being able to go to the cinema isn't going to change, you know, more than 100 years of people's culture, of going out, of enjoying, you know, these stories on the big screen together. Yes, I think I think one of the quotes from I think it's from one of your articles, or certainly Lewis, we talked about it, is that our ability to get Uber Eats to bring food to our house isn't going to stop me wanting to go to a restaurant to have a meal. Nope, you can always drink beer cheaper at home than you can down in the pub with your mates. But still, somehow, I think when the pubs reopen, they're going to be as full as you know social distancing allows. In terms of the the sort of subject of release window, which is. Which is the thing that sort of got the headlines, and I think for for someone who's not involved with film, Windows is a is a is a, is a term that doesn't make sense to to the layperson. So, what 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 does it mean first? What does release window mean to you in twenty twenty one? Well, you know the films um, that Hollywood and other um, producers make um, have turned the money back, and there are several ways of doing it. Cinema is the most obvious one, but they used to make shed loads of money um, on DVD back when we were still buying them, and before that, VHS, and hmm. they'd sell them to airlines to screen them, and they would segment the releases so that they would squeeze the most profit out of each and every one of those you know, limited time frames when it was exclusively available on that platform. And there used to be more of them. Now it's become more compressed. They've collapsed into each other and people often want things instantly there's an expectation of you know why should i have to wait when um you know i'm seeing it advertised i should be able to watch it at home equally to watching it in this cinema and you can't do that you can't do that for certain films even before the pandemic we mentioned we've talked about curzon um you know the art house cinema chain in the uk and they're also a distributor and they've put their films on uh both in their cinema and on their uh, streaming service so you've got a choice of whether you want to watch them in the cinema or in you know off your couch in the living room but what people forget is that these windows have forever been changing you know you used to have to wait you know two years or three years for a film to come out on Sky. Um, and we had the, all these intermediate stages, which are no longer here. So, for example, I remember growing up, it was very frustrating. You know, a big blockbuster would come out in uh, the United States. 
And I'd have to wait until the autumn. I mean, it might be opening on you know 4th of July, but I'd have to wait until October before I could see it at my local multiplex on this side of the Atlantic. So there used to be international windows, there used to be technology windows, but now everything is becoming shorter and shorter. And now the cinemas and some of the studios are pushing to have a day and date release. Everything comes out on the same day. So we've had, for example, Warner Brothers making the announcement that for the next year, all of their big titles in leagues in the United States are going to be available in the cinema if you want to see it there. Or if you're still a bit worried about going out and leaving your home, you can watch it on HBO Max for the first month. And then they go into the whole window thing and they don't come back onto HBO Max until six to 12 months later, which is when they would normally appear on those kind of premium platforms. So again, there's a lot of changes, a lot of experimentation during the pandemic. There have been attempts at premium video on demand. There have been films that have been bundled together with your Disney Plus subscription. And of course, then there were platforms like Netflix, which were even before the pandemic pushing for a very short window. So yes, you could go and watch um, Roma or The Irishman in the cinema, but they would only push it out there maybe a couple of weeks before everybody could watch it at home. So the Windows thing is not settled. It's getting shorter, but there's still some value in terms of having different platforms and slight separations for exploitation of, of these kind of films. What do you think release window means then for for when they when they begin to reopen? Because I think it's interesting already what you've said there is that the while the headline was Warner Brothers films are all going to come out on HBO Max, mm. the the wider discussion wasn't already like points of detail you've made there, which is yeah. they go back into a window after a period mm. of being available because they're available as a yeah. premium piece of content, and also mm. it's only you it's only largely USA that it's affecting. So yeah. other other markets around the world are not going to change as dramatically, are they not? As a result. No, and maybe what we'll touch upon is if you put something out in digital available in the home, at the same time cinema, you're also putting out a perfect digital copy that can be pirated and you know distributed um, and watched illegally uh, much more easily than if somebody was trying to record it with you know a handheld camcorder in a multiplex. So hmm. that's the flip side of these kind of day and date release. But what's going to happen afterwards is the fundamental economics aren't going to change because these... Films, mainly the big Hollywood blockbusters we're talking about, the Fast and the Furious, you know, the, the Harry Potter and so on, they cost, you know, huge sums of money to make, $100, $200 million. And having something like a James Bond film, the economics aren't there to get a return on investment by just putting it on a streaming platform. We know that there have been studios and platforms sniffing around uh, No Time to Die. Apple reportedly was looking at it. Amazon was looking at it. But, you know, even the, it, it costs two or three hundred million to make and to market so far. And it's going to have to make back, you know, 700, 800 million you know, at the box office and additional ancillary revenues after that from airlines, from streaming and so on. Not even Apple, not even Amazon and Netflix are going to plunk down, you know, a cool seven, eight hundred million dollars for the right to stream a Bond film to all of their uh, subscribers. They just, the economics don't add up. When a film like Avatar 2 and 3 come out in a few years, again, 
they are so expensive that there is simply no way to make that money back, even if you charged everybody 20 quid uh, to watch it at home, because they couldn't get that kind of returns. They'd have to put it out in the cinema first. So there's a very strong financial argument for keeping these kind of windows. But in the pandemic, obviously, the rules are different. Mm. So in in that sense, listening to that, that logic of... of they're too big to just let out and, and restrict the revenues and or you have to pay a hefty premium if you want it. Isn't there a fear then that the the risk on the two, three hundred million budget movie is removed if the position of the cinema is weakened as a, as part of the value added chain? Because I think clearly the cinema is like an explosion on how important a film is. The more the more it gets eyeballs, the more people talk about it the more important it becomes. That's how, and then when it hits the ancillary markets, it's just riding mm. the wave of, of everybody saying this yeah. is an important piece of art or an important piece of commercial art. Now oh, you hit the nail on its head. And, and you know, there's, there's no red carpet glamour associated with a film opening on Netflix. They might have a one-off screening, but it's not going to be the same. No one's going to talk about, you know, on the opening weekend, it made X millions of, of dollars. And what we're also sometimes forgetting is that a lot of the stars, the directors, the leading actors associated with these kind of blockbusters, they have a back-end deal. Because these films are so expensive to make, they can't afford to write them a check for you know, 20, 30 million. So Tom Cruise gets instead a cut of the total box office. And when you have a streaming ride, you can't calculate that because if his Mission Impossible 9 was watched you know, 50 million times, 100 million times, what does that equal to in terms of the back-end pay package that he'll get from it. It just, again, the economics aren't there. So, for example, when Warner's made the difficult decision of putting out Wonder Woman 84 in both um, theatrical uh, cinemas where it was open and on HBO Max, they had to sign a pretty big check to Gal Gadot and to Patty Jenkins, the director, to let them... um, release the film this way because they had it in their contract that they were going to get a cut based on how much the film made in the cinemas. And if people are saying it watching at home at no extra cost, if you're an HBO Max subscriber, then they lose out. Hmm. So then um, with with it, and, and I think this speaks to Jim Amos's, um, his article on your website, um, with us being out of practice as far as going to the cinema, and that, I just mean, as a natural human instinct for going, you know, there are plenty of people mm-hmm. who would have gone 10 or 12 times a year, and there are plenty of people like me who go three times a week that haven't been able to do that. And mm-hmm. suddenly you'd be faced with the cho- with the choice again to do it, or, as Jim says, sit in your sweats and watch it, you know, with the remote in your hand. Um, so what is it, what are we going to get? Is as part of the added value of cinema. How's it going to rise above just watching a film at home? What do you what do you expect to see, and what what do you see already in terms of what's on offer to make the cinema the better offer in terms of how do I watch a film? Well, I've, I've said this many times, but if there's a silver lining to the pandemic, is that when you go back to the cinema, you will never have seen the toilets be so clean. You know, <laughs> sticky floors, forget about it. Sanitation, you know, is going to be scrubbed from top to bottom. So it's going to be a bright and shiny and very welcoming uh, multiplex with staff super happy to see you back and being the smilest and friendliest because they've got a job. And they're very keen for you to not just come back once, but come back multiple times. So Mm. they will really be rolling out the red carpet for you. Now, 
Initially, we're not going to see the blockbusters. It's going to take a bit of time because we don't know when they're going to reopen. We're going to see some films push back again, like we've seen the Bond film push back three times already. So initially, you know, we will be re-releases. There will be some older films. But again, what's interesting here is, again, we talked about the streaming. And if you looked at last week, the number one film in North America was, drumroll, Trolls. No, sorry, Crudes. Crudes 2. And this is a film that had been out for 12 weeks that was available. You could watch it at home, you know, with premium video on demand. And yet it beat out every new, it beat out new prestige releases from Warner Brothers, like uh, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. It beat out lots and lots of films. So a 12-week-old animated family title that people can easily get at home is still what people went out to watch where they could, where cinemas were open. So... People okay. are returning. And so old films initially, and then we'll see new films, and then we'll see the blockbusters. So it's going to be a gradual stepping up. And we've seen this in other parts of the world, specifically in Asia Pacific, where cinemas have reopened or stayed open. And there's some incredible numbers coming out of territories like China, which just finished their Chinese New Year five-day holiday. They had a box office of one2 billion dollars i mean that's staggering wow. figures uh they had uh the release of a film called detective chinatown 3 which broke the global all-time record for how much a single film earns in its opening weekend in just one territory so even even the new star wars films didn't match it in terms of what they earned in their opening weekend in the United States or North America compared to this, what this film earned in China. So, and this is with a cap of 50% in cinemas, they could only sell half the tickets. And despite that, people were just so willing to come back to the cinemas to watch these big, big blockbusters that, you know, they broke global records. I think that's what we're going to see, but not until the cinemas have been open for a while and not until the really, really big films start rolling out again. So the Top Gun, Maverick, you know, the new Fast and Furious, and of course, the Bond film, The Sultan. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the way you're describing it, it's almost like, the the big blockbuster releases being in cinemas is going to be an indication of chaos averted almost you know they'll they'll be they'll be the 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 real sort of flag that's being waved going yeah. actually we're we're seemingly back to something like normal <laughs> get um, get maverick out in the cinemas yeah. kind of thing that's Absolutely. interesting you know what the biggest threat to cinemas is you know this summer it's it's <clears throat> once people are vaccinated and you know they're comfortable and cinemas reopen uh, the second biggest danger is uh, after the covid vaccine is sunshine good weather nothing kills cinema like good weather you know forget viruses people have a choice between being outside and finally being able to mix and socialize with their friends you know it's hmm. it's a hard proposition to get them to go inside so cinema owners curse good weather they like nothing more than a gloomy rainy wet miserable summer so you know if we get that we're guaranteed to have a good box office for the summer <laughs> and then in terms of once I'm in there and what's happening while I'm in the cinema, what what's going to be going on to make, you know, we're talking about the film titles at the moment, but in terms of my, yeah. the customer experience of being in a cinema, all right, we've got the cleanest cinemas we've we've <clears> known <throat> since we've been <throat> alive, but that's not going that alone won't be enough to to make to tempt no. some people out. So um, what's what's the offer going to be like in the cinemas do you think? 
what we've seen, and this has already been happening for several years, is the attempt mm. of really trying to distinguish the cinema experience from the couch in your home. And there's two ways of doing that. One is to mm. build a more comfortable couch, which is what the likes of Cousin and Everyman are doing you know, with table service, with a bottle of wine, with burgers. You know, it's it's like your your home, but transformed into a, a luxury hotel experience with a big screen attached to it. Yes. So on one hand, you have that, you know, and that's saying very much for more middle-aged people like myself and yourself. I hate saying this. No, no, no. And I'm, then you have, I'm not embarrassed to admit it, Patrick. My, my last two visits to Everyman was... <laughs> Halloween, 1978 version, and the Big Lebowski yeah. anniversary edition, and I drank White Russians while watching a film on a couch. There you go. And you could have done that so much more cheaply at home, you know, mm. rather than going out to the Everyman, and yet you chose to do it in the cinema. So, you know, I rest my case. But no, and the <laughs> other thing is, for more younger audiences, this is the more of a theme park direction. So there it's, again, experiential, but mm. in a different way. So we're talking about the premiumization through a new format. So we have things like the supersized screens uh, with the IMAXs, with the immersive audio, the Dolby Atmos. You also have things like motion seating. You have the 4DX where you have the sheets, the seats that vibrate, that, you know, spray water in your face and you get the smell of burning rubber when you're watching Fast and Furious. So, um, and then you have uh, completely new concepts like the, Screen X format, which Cineworld is rolling out in the UK. Mm. And this is a, you know, immersive 270 degree where you get, it's like surround sound for the eyes. There's action on the side of uh, the screens as well. I saw I saw the Meg down at O2, uh, well, Cineworld yeah. with that. So what was that like? It's quite surreal because it's not, it's not for the <laughs> whole film. It's, um, no. It's like the three, like when what I remember about watching 3D movies when they came out in the 80s is that they'd save up their moments and so you'd get your 3D moments, but then you'd last be watching a normal film. And that's yeah. kind of what it is. It's sort of every now and again the film would just envelop you and then it would fade mm. away. So yeah, it's it's a it's a surreal experience. I can't I, I can't say it yes. made it better or worse. It just was an experience. <laughs> it's an experience and it's an experience you can't get at home, you can't No, I could have done that at home, so, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So those kind of things. And it's good. I'm reminded of the same when I saw the um, first of the new Star Wars where, you know, they shot part of it with the IMAX camera. So when you come to the uh, uh, the um, battle scene between the spaceships and suddenly the you know picture grows to fill up the whole screen. Again, we're seeing filmmakers move in that direction as well with things such as more use of shooting an entire film using the IMAX camera. So it's not just Christopher Nolan. And, you know, the Avengers film, it's more and more films which are specifically, you know, created for the biggest possible big screen experience. And it's, again, everything really to distinguish it so that even if you have a 55 inch, 65 inch OLED you know, TV in your home uh, with the best sound bar or, you know, even speakers around you, it's still not going to approximate what you get from an IMAX mm. type of screen. No, I mean I was I was fortunate enough um when uh, Frightfest screened um uh, Gaspar Noé's Climax it was at um mm. at Cineworld Leicester Square which I don't imagine Gaspar Noé ever thought he'd have a sound system like that playing one of his movies <laughs> but it was like getting yeah. assaulted by a tank it was oh, just God. an amazingly physical experience watching a film that mm. way and since watching it on Netflix at home it's like a, it's like yeah. it's not it's not like the same thing. It's not even like the same film. It's... No, no. And I I had a similar experience with I went to see uh, Roma 
uh, at a preview, and it was a small uh, mid-sized screen, actually, but mm. it had Dolby Atmos. And again, you don't think that Rome has a kind of Dolby Atmos surround sound. It's not like gravity, you know, an obvious mm. one where you have an explosion there and things there, but it really pulled you into and it made you experience the film, I felt, in a different way. So, yes, the blockbusters are obvious one, but you're right. We are seeing a differential with other types of films as well, and, and hopefully more people will pick up on this and appreciate that and again realize that you know the best soundbar still doesn't recreate that kind of experience in your home and you know judging by the success that um certain cinema chains not the big multiplex in the uk but the everyman's and the cousins and so on the ones who do show the netflix films and they don't just see people come to watch them before it's released on uh, netflix but they even tend to play a few weeks after that because some people really want to experience that the irishman or roma on the big screen no and and one of my favorite stories of the pandemic in terms of film if you can have a favorite story because mm. <laughs> it's you not can. been it's you not been can. it's not yeah, been full of good news <laughs> but was um was the shudder original film host which obviously was conceived uh -huh. in the space of 12 weeks executed and released on a platform and then mm -hmm. and so by the june i think it was it was available to watch on shudder and by the september you were watching it at the BFI South Bank because people uh -huh. wanted to see it on a big screen. Mm. So there was like this film that was conceived wholly out of the the restrictions of the pandemic to be watched yes. in a way that allowed that in your home, obviously mm. through a channel like Shudder, but demand via I'm guessing via I can only imagine word of mouth of some description was enough for them to do a limited cinematic release of something that was never made with that in mind in the first place. But you touched upon a very important point there, which is, I think, the third big change we're going to see after the pandemic in cinema. So actually, we're not going to see it, but we're going to notice it. So the first one is you know, much cleaner. The second one, you know, the push towards premium and experience that. The third one is invisible. It's going to be being much better at being able to target films and to connect with audiences because previously you know you put up the poster you played the trailer you didn't really know who showed up but hopefully they showed up in big numbers and bought popcorn as well now they're going to have to get smarter in terms of using that big data of you know if you're a you know an audience member or if you you know cineworld unlimited or if you just find yourself on the email list or you follow the facebook page of a particular chain that they realize that they can con not control, but they can target and they can you know, pinpoint with greater accuracy the kind of films you'd be interested in. So rather than just sending the same generic email newsletter to everybody else or seeing the same kind of adverts pop up in your social media feed, they can do a better job of telling you this weekend or this Monday, more likely, forget weekends, they get sold out anyway, this Monday or this Wednesday, we've got a special screening of this film which we think you might like, and they might discount to throw in a small popcorn or something, but really getting better at, you know, creating a more customized experience. Netflix has, you know, done this beautifully in terms of understanding the audience profile. The cinemas are just starting to get into that, but they're going to have to do it much, much better after the pandemic. So the world is going to become like Prince Charles Cinema almost. <laughs> I'd love it if it did. That is a great example because, no, they, they really bring the best. You know, you can see it doesn't matter if it's highbrow or lowbrow, but there's something there for everybody. And you know, they appeal to so many different tribes and they do it so well. And, and that's such a 
wonderful cinema experience just visiting the set. So yes, by all means, more Prince Charles. One of one of the other things that people that repeatedly said to me, and something we talked about in in the in the pre pre podcast chat, is is that what we're really seeing isn't so much a response to the pandemic, but a speeding up of a trend that was already happening. You know, the drama about reducing the cinema's window was actually, as you described in the evolution of the shrinking of the window, was just something that sped up that was already in transit. So one of the points that you we, we, we made a note of is what this all really signals is the end of DVD, um, yes. Territory's versions and Milk in a Film for All It's Worth. Do you want to just sort of unpack what that means? Sure. And it's again, it's worth remembering that Netflix... Netflix isn't killing cinema, but it sure as hell killed blockbusters. You know, mm. it did away with the idea of, you know, people going out, renting a film, you know, bring it back on a VHS tape or or buying a DVD and giving us a gift. You know, I, I try to give away DVDs as a present. Some people, you know, really embarrassed and say, I'm sorry, I haven't got a player for it because we can get everything um, to that. So that has disappeared. And, and the danger, therefore, because... Studios, Hollywood studios, make so much money. You know, half of a film's lifetime earnings would come from what they call packaged home media. So it's VHS rental, it's DVD buying, it's that type of thing. And Blu-ray hasn't, you know, stepped in to fill that gap in terms of the earnings. And they don't make the same kind of money from streaming the films yet. But they know they have to be on the streaming platforms. The big studios know that they need to have their own, which is why we've got Disney Plus and we've got HBO Max from Warner Brothers. And it's a bit of a worry, which is why Universal has to go and make these, you know, premium or transactional video on demand deals for films like Trolls World Tour uh, and so on. So everybody's scrabbling around to sort of see what can we do that can fill the gap, you know, this black hole in our finances from DVDs going away. How can we make streaming pay for at least part of that. And this is what we're seeing right now. We're seeing a huge battle between the studios in terms of supremacy, because even though the number of um, subscriptions that people have been paying for in the pandemic has gone up, I think on average people had about three before the pandemic, now we're up to about four. Hmm. No one's going to want to subscribe to five or six. So once you have your Amazon Prime video, once you have your Netflix, maybe the Disney Plus for the kids, probably now TV, you know, how many more do you want to pay for? Yeah, maybe you have the occasional, you know, cousin and so on if you're a real, real film buff, but are you going to want to have a subscription service like Peacock from Universal? What about Paramount, Sony, or of those? There's a limit to how many sustainable streaming platforms there can be that people are prepared to pay for. And Disney Plus has taken off hugely because they are sitting with all the franchises. You know, they've got Pixar, they've got Marvel, they've got Lucasfilm, Disney Animation, National Geographics. It's an obvious, it's a babysitter. It's not a streaming channel, you know, to keep your children occupied. Um, And then HBO Max, you know, they've got some great content, everything from TV stuff like Friends to Godzilla and Batman and so on. So it's an obvious one, but how many other streaming platforms can have a success? And they need deep, deep pockets to be able to take on the likes of Netflix and specifically Amazon, you know, with Amazon currently spending over a billion uh, to get this Lord of the Rings prequel, uh, sequel, equal, whatever it is that they're shooting in New Zealand right now as a TV series. Um, And, 
Yeah. So it's the battle of the streaming platforms and, you know, cinema is going to be doing just fine because in the end, they're going to have to come to cinema to start earning more money back uh, to help subsidize those streaming platforms. Yeah. So so it it makes me think of um, the way that the music industry had to shift. And in terms of, Mm. you know, your Spotify's and your Apple Music's and your Amazon Music's became a place to publicize your music. And the live event, which I suppose there's a parallel between the live event and going to the cinema to see a movie. Um, so you, can, yeah, you yep. can see how they, 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 there's a symbiotic relationship as much as a competitive one between there the is. way you ex, the way you experience the product, as it were. And it's always horrible when you Absolutely. say product, but it is, isn't it? <laughs> no, the film we can say product. We're it's the business lingo. But again, and the important thing to remember here is it's not a it's not a zero sum game. It's not an either or. Study after study has shown that the people who love films they love them on every platform. So the most frequent cinema goers are the people most likely to have two or three you know streaming subscriptions. So it's the people who really don't give a monkey's about films that you know aren't the ones going to the cinema, and they might not have a Netflix subscription either. Maybe they're just watching football. What do I know? But mm. that's the problem here. And what's interesting here is that if you look at the film that has dominated the discussion in the pandemic, and that's sort of been the barometer of, of which the whole industry it stands and falls has been the Bond film. You know, it mm. was the first big film to shift when the pandemic started. It's had to move again and again. And the reason that people look to it so much is because Bond is the kind of film that people go to see in cinema who don't normally go to the cinema. So it exactly. really pulls people, you know, the ones who go once a year. Um, mm. Yeah, and that's why it's so critical because so much will be judged by how well it does in the cinema. Because frankly, whatever comes before that here in the UK, yes, we'll have Top Gun, yes, we'll probably have Black Widow and we'll have Fast and Furious. But that is the big kahuna. That is the one that's going to set the tone for just how big a film can be post pandemic. Oh, it's interesting that to think of it that way. Yeah, because when I when the when you were saying, it, I was thinking, yeah, of all the films that I can see coming on the horizon. The Bonds one's the only film that my father-in-law is going to go and see, and he will go and see it. And that's the thing; it's sort of it, he doesn't go to the cinema a lot, but he will go and see a Bond film. It's quite it's quite an interesting hold mm. that that brand that film brand has over a, a, a broad audience. Amazingly, yes. So you can see why it's different from um, the fact that the that Tenet got released, and it almost feels like, in a way, Tenet feels like the canary in the cave that. Bond mm. went, oh, God, no, no, we're not doing it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's also, I mean, credit to Christopher Nolan for pushing for that to be released. And it's one mm. of only two films. And again, there were two Warner Brothers films, Wonder Woman 84 and Tenet that came out as tentpoles. Everybody else just up the sticks and pushed it to 2021 or later. So, mm. but, you know, there's all sorts of issues with Tenet. You know, it was it was fairly highbrow thriller. It didn't have any name stars. It wasn't part of a franchise or a known cinematic universe. It was always going to be a tough sell. And to hang all your hopes for cinemas reopening on that, it's amazing that it did as well as it did. But it maybe had too much on it, riding on it in terms of expectations. So, but we've seen elsewhere. You know, other films, like I said, the ones in China are pulling them in. What's been also remarkable is during the pandemic, if we look across the world and especially Europe, is how well local films did um, 
when there were no Hollywood blockbusters to compete with them. So, for example, in Australia, where cinemas open right now, four of the five top titles are local productions. And the fifth one is not even a Hollywood film. It's Detective Chinatown 3 uh, playing to local uh, Chinese audience in Australia. And similarly, if we see, you know, we had tremendous success with, was it Denmark had the biggest hits in three years with another round, this great Mads Mikkelsen film that I highly recommend. Uh, in UK, we saw really good numbers for local films like St. Maud um, and other small, you know, independent films. So, there's been proof that the cinemas that did really or well did better, actually, the multiplexes during the brief reopening between the, these lockdowns that we've had were the Everymans, were the Curzons, the ones that were innovative with programming that didn't just depend or think of the big blockbusters to come and save them. And again, that's the change I think, I hope, and I think we will see that after the pandemic that will have more diverse programming, that will have you know, a greater selection of films programmed at different times, maybe playing longer uh, than they would otherwise have. And that that is another way of getting the audiences in. I mean, that's something that I've learned from the interviews I did with the Inside Pictures people is that for for, a, for the smaller films that wouldn't have the P&A budget to be getting you all down there on the single Friday through to the next Friday to make sure it was a success, if you can be showing a film once a week for eight weeks, that's better than eight days in the cinema. Yes, and, that's a brilliant point. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where you get a studio, a, a cinema manager or a cinema chain curating mm. the way that it wants to get its audience through the door. You know, it's it's all very well having a novel thing like, you know, Babies and Parents Morning or something, but you're still watching the studio, the big studio release that's in all the cinemas. Yeah. Whereas if you say very true. four o'clock on a Monday, we're going to have mm. 60s classics and it'll be via yes. votes or whatever, suddenly you're... Yeah. You're engaging directly with the people who walk in the door, not not you the do. idea of an of an homogenous program. And you give a chance to the film to to grow and find an audience organically. It's that old. Do you remember word of mouth? When we mm. have word of mouth in cinemas and recommendation for film, yeah, it still happens occasionally. So, for example, uh, movie the streaming service, brilliant, um, you know, curated uh, streaming service, which introduced a great concept uh, just before the pandemic called Movie Go, which is if you're a movie subscriber, you get a free cinema ticket every week. But it's not just a, a blank cinema ticket. You can know, watch Avengers with it or whatever. They will again be curated and they will select and say, this is a really good film. We think that you would enjoy, you know, playing in the cinema. Why don't you go and see it this week? And they've also distributed films and they've had real successes with that whole concept of, like you said, of, of being able to let a film stay in the film for in the cinema for a while. So there was an obscure, you know, Swedish film called Border. Uh, again, a, a little gem of a film, but an amazing piece of work. You've seen it, yeah, yeah. And it played for eight or twelve weeks, I think. It ran in the cinemas. I mean, completely un unheard of. That I mean, un unbelievably, Patrick. I saw that in a Cineworld in Enfield. I mean, I had to no look way. for where I could watch it, but I got it was on at a Cineworld. Yeah, it was amazing. The fact that it, they they took a chance on putting it on in that particular one. It wasn't across yeah. London, never mind across no. the country. But well, that's amazing. And again, hopefully, we'll see that kind of you know brave programming, um, you know, being put forward to the pandemic and rewarded by people actually going to see it because uh, there's clearly an audience for even those kind of films. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it work. I mean, because I, I I'm lucky enough to live in a part of London where. I'm near, I'm right near the O2 and I'm right near West India Quay, which are two Cineworld cinemas. Mm. But yes. 
and because of the picture house connection between Cineworld, um, there's always an opportunity to show something a bit more interesting at Western Indy Key. And obviously, given where it is and the demographic yes. of people who are working oh, yeah. in Canary Wharf, the mm -hmm. programming at West India Key is worlds away from Greenwich, O2. True. You know, I'll get to see a Jeremy Saulnier movie like Green Room or something. Right. Which, which is available streaming, easy peasy, but it was so much better to be able yeah. to watch it at the cinema. And that was a benefit. That was where they're going. They're edging their bets going, we've got a more, uh, right. what do you call it? Sophisticated sounds like I'm being elitist, but a more discerning audience who are willing to hmm. take a chance on a smaller film. Yes. No, no, definitely. And again, with, with uh, Cineworld, if you're an unlimited um, member uh, and you can watch any number of films um, for a fixed price each month, then you'll, you'll take more chances. You know, you'll go and watch those things which you might not have chance on if you had to buy a ticket. But if it's a sunk cost, if you've already paid your uh, 20, 25 quid, whatever it is per month, and you've got a free evening, then yes, you might go and see a film like Border, even if you know nothing about it. Now, you, you mentioned, um, now you've already talked about it in, in, in dispatches, as it were, but you did mention if there was time, um, the, the rise of China and what that means for films now that it's the largest cinema territory in the world. Is there anything that you, you'd like to add in terms of what you've not, not already said in regard to China? Well, we've already seen trends for a long time. Um, some of it painfully obvious of sort of, you know, throwing in a scene set in China, which, you know, can work like they did in The Dark Knight or, um, you know, the, one of the Bond films, having a token Skyfall, Shanghai yeah. gambling. So, yeah, Skyfall, exactly. Um, mm. Or as a Kong Skull Island, where you have a, you know, token Chinese actress sort of phonetically learning her lines and delivering them very stilted way. Well, the, the um, if, if, you, if, you, if you do get to see the Meg, the Meg is all set around a Chinese seacoast, ah. the, whole, the whole thing. Yes, is. yes, yes. That's true. That's true. But what's very interesting and people don't realize is we're already seeing um, Chinese influence. We talked about streamers. You know, there's been a big speculation of when is a streamer like Netflix going to win the Oscar for Best Picture? You know, they've tried with Roma. They tried with The Irishman. They keep hoping and they're you know, Amazon competing. Well, guess what? A streamer has already won the Oscar for Best Picture. It wasn't Netflix. It wasn't Amazon. It was Green Book which was co-financed by Alibaba Pictures, a Chinese company, which has a stake in streaming. So again, there's you know Chinese money making its way into Hollywood. And funnily enough, a film like Green Book, which you wouldn't think had any success you know, in China because it's something so remote from their world in terms of you know racism in the South in the 1950s. Hmm. It was a big success there, actually, because it opened you know, their eyes to a completely different world. So hopefully we'll see more of that kind of cross-pollination. What we're not seeing is we're not seeing Chinese films playing well outside of China. Yeah, Detective Chinatown 3 might have been in the top five in Australia, but that was most likely expat Chinese going to see it for the Chinese New Year. Right. Unlike, let's say, Bollywood films, which do well pretty much everywhere. Again, mostly with the Indian diaspora and so on. But so China is having an impact in terms of how films get made, especially if they can be, you know, have an element to appeal to them. But other than financing, the only thing we're seeing is that they have a lot of technology innovation, which is likely to push because they love premium even more than we do because guess what the equivalent of you know taking your girlfriend out for a date in china of giving her a gucci handbag is to take her to the imax you're not going to impress her by taking her to the box standard multiplex down the road so 
there was an interview with Richard Gelfond, uh, the CEO of IMAX, actually just yesterday, and uh, I think it was Variety. And again, uh, IMAX has done better than any other North American company out of uh, China reopening because they have something like 700 screens. I mean, pretty soon half of their business will come from China. So China is leading the way in terms of showing this kind of premiumization of cinema, whether it's IMAX, 4DX motion seats or just really, really good design service, technology, software ticketing apps, that kind of thing. Wow. Well, um, before we wrap up, um, is there anything that you've that we've that you've not been able to cover that you wanted to say about uh, that, that's either encouraging or innovative innovations on the way that you're you, you're foreseeing that you'd like to mention? I think the important thing to remember is it's been a very strange twelve months during the pandemic. We all know that, but it's been even stranger for cinemas and for film consumption. What's been interesting is that we've seen so much experimentation, and we're only just figuring out what works, what doesn't work. And I'm convinced that people will come back to the cinema. But we've also seen interesting what doesn't seem to be working. Yes, Trolls World Tour made $100 million when they released it straight on video demand. But as a uh, Canadian cinema owner who I greatly respect, Vince Guzzo said, you know, $100 million when families were locked down at home, you, know, you think that's impressive? You know, show me 500 million, that would be impressive. And what's been interesting is that there's been a big failure of premium video on demand, which hasn't been talked about much. So for example, Disney pulled Mulan, and instead of you know showing it in cinema, it went on Disney Plus, but it wasn't enough if you're a Disney Plus subscriber. You had to fork out an extra 20 pounds on top of that to be able to watch it. They never released the numbers on just how well it did, or probably how well it didn't do. It probably didn't do Trolls numbers because guess what? The very next title that they pulled from cinemas, which was the Pixar animation, so it got bundled with your Disney Plus subscription. So they gave up on this idea that people would be prepared to pay extra on top of their subscription for these kind of big releases. So instead they did what they did before uh, Mulan, which was they bundled it You know, when Hamilton came out which again was meant to have come out in cinemas, but they threw it in with your Disney Plus subscription. And right now, there is the you know bonfire of money taking place at the Warner Brothers lot because effectively they are burning up um, the cinema, the future earnings from the big blockbusters that Warner Brothers is coming out this year in North America, whether it's Suicide Squad whether it's Matrix 4, whether it's Godzilla Kong, just so they can rescue the HBO Max streaming platform, which has been performing incredibly badly up until now. Even they couldn't even persuade cable subscriber to HBO to switch over to HBO Max, because that means they wouldn't have to pay cable carriage fees you know, to Comcast and to other ones if they could get people to watch it on the streaming. So there's been tremendous failures that we haven't really talked about because we think that it's all a golden age of streaming, but it's actually a Darwinian battle going on behind the scenes. And we're not going to see the true outcome of that until cinemas have reopened and the dust has settled. A few years ago, I did, uh, I did, some, I did, a, I did an MA in mass communication. And in that, we were looking at TV consumption, just, you know, when there's more choice, what do you watch? And obviously the streamers represent that idea of more and more choice. But obviously, with more and more choice, you don't get more and more hours or more and more days. And and there's a you know basic study that exists in TV. If I give you a hundred channels to choose from, mm. 
on average, you will watch 12 channels regularly. So that is, what, 88 channels you're not watching. Mm. If I give you 200 channels to choose from, how many do you think you watch? <laughs> 13. So one more, more. <laughs> more choice is not... It, it still comes down to what do I like and where can I get what I like, as opposed to what choice do I have? Because, you know, we are humans at the end of it. And I think, hopefully, that... I mean, this is... I'm being a bit grandstand here, but hopefully that is a bit a bit of a reason why the human experience of going to a cinema is something that we won't lose or have or lost completely because of the pandemic. It's like when we go back, we'll realise, oh, no, that's it. And obviously business itself knows that the ripples are successful cinema releases. Yeah. That's where the value in the film. And like, I think it's fascinating that, that streamers, premium or otherwise, have got away with what cinemas have, have had to be public about for years. Mm -hmm. It's like... When a cinema has a film where 12 people walk in the door, they have to show this 12 people walk through the door. They don't get to go, oh, no, it was a wonderful, oh, it was, you know, just filibuster about it. They don't get that option, but the streamers at the moment are given a free reign and a free mm -hmm. ride almost in terms of success and failure, which is yes. which is that old term, you know, you know what they call it, um, technological determination. But it's in industry sense, there's so much vested interest mm. in the streaming being a success for some people that... Yes you have to say it's going to be so because we've all invested mm. in it. Whereas, yep. you know, show me someone who owns a mini displayer now. Show mm. me some, you know, that doesn't, they never took off. And no. yet they were important. I mean, I, I mean, it was it's amazing when you look at how governments speak about these things and you go back through history. I mean, Kenneth Clark, when he was minister in the 80s, said that the cable TV revolution would, would rival the industrial revolution. <laughs> well, it wow. didn't, did it? It didn't, no. and and so I think I think there's hope. There's more than hope for cinema. I think I think mm. humans will, will dig it. Um, but that rem it remains to be seen. While we're in a pandemic, which is when we're doing this talk, and I just mm. I'm just I'm very grateful for you to share your knowledge and experience. Yeah. And yeah, and if there's one thing, one message I could finish up on, it's yeah. this one. I've hammered it home time and time again in, in multiple settings and so on. Which is that in today's situation, pandemic post-pandemic one film is commodity you can get it on any platform you know any film old new you can access it legally legally it's available film is commodity cinema is experience that's a very important and hopefully hopefully it is a good experience and i hope that after the pandemic it'll be an concerted effort by the industry to make it the best experience well, thank you very much, Patrick, for your time on the Britflix podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure's been all mine. Thank you very much. Okay.